0: All right, everybody, it is Sunday. Welcome to another edition of This Week in Startups. We don't leave you hanging over the weekend like some shows.
1: No, 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 no. Six days a week here, maybe someday seven. Uh, But we have a must listen to VC Sunday School today about the pain of raising money and keeping your company going in a down market. Yeah, this is
0: hyper tactical. Pay attention and take some notes. I know I did. And
1: then Molly has an awesome, awesome uh, climate startup for This Week in Climate. That's called Clarity.io and uh, tell us a little bit about what they do. Yeah, it's a hardware as a service
0: business that builds products to measure air quality. They actually call it sensing as a service for cities, Sats. for municipalities. They, yeah, I like calling a, it hash It's a SaaS business. It's a, it's a HASS business. It's a has. Uh, But it's just, you know, on the theory that you can't manage what you don't measure. This is really, really valuable because turns out air pollution, direct result of emissions and kills a lot of people yeah. every year.
1: And if we can measure it, we can make better decisions, right? So it's going to be
0: a
2: great show. Stick with us. This Week in Startups is brought to you by Embroker. Embroker's startup insurance program helps startups secure the most important types of insurance at a lower cost and with less hassle. Save up to 20% off of traditional insurance today at Embroker.com slash twist. While you're there, get an extra 10% off using offer code TWIST microacquire the startup acquisition marketplace start the right acquisition conversations at your own pace get free and instant access to over 100,000 trusted buyers with total anonymity say goodbye to brokers and meet your ideal buyer today go to try.microacquire.com twist and brave Brave is an internet privacy company on a mission to protect your personal info online. Download Brave today at brave.com slash twist to browse faster, search privately, and so much more, all in a single click.
1: All right, Molly is in the second half of her first year as a venture capitalist, and it is going really freaking great. It is. It is going really
0: freaking great. I have four companies in our portfolio. Yum, yum. It's all happening more <laughs> and more. And, and I'm just starting to meet with more and more great companies. And then it's sort of like the actual BC learning process layered on with hmm. the changing macroeconomics, which makes it even that much more interesting. Yeah, certainly and so more dynamic. Yeah. Today, hmm. I actually want to present you with a literal test case. Test case? Yeah, right, let's do it. Okay.
1: So I'm, we're not going to say the name of the company. Obviously, no, this no, no, is like a, not. Uh, no what details. Do they call it a composite.
0: This is a composite. It's a composite because okay. it's a conversation that is, I think, w- totally representative of lots of other some version yes. of this conversation I have now had with like multiple companies, yeah. and that conversation is sort of what should I do next? So mm-hmm. I'm talking to this great company. Really mm-hmm. want to invest in them. They yeah. have raised a pre-seed. Okay, and now are trying to decide if they should raise around at a higher valuation,
3: right? Of course, we know
0: that higher valuations right now are problematic. And I think a lot of companies find themselves in this position, which is like, do I raise? Do I Mm -hmm. reopen my pre-seed? Do I do a bridge? And, And it's sort of like VC plus founder Sunday school.
1: Got it. All right. So a lot of VCs and seed investors and angels who are already on the cap table of different startups are now faced with what is the best advice uh, you can give to your founder or just as a team, which is really how you should look at it is uh, as a team investor and founder, what should our next move be given the changing market dynamics? What's in both of our interests, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So uh, if the company is a pre seed company, you'd say that means they probably haven't launched their product, or maybe they have an MVP, something to that effect. But um, they may have raised that, in 2021, when a pre-seed might get 10 or 15 million dollars as a valuation, because people were looking at their portfolios and they were loosey-goosey and they were splashy cashy, splashy cashy, yep. which yep. is what I do when I'm at the blackjack table. Basically, means I I like to take five dollar chips when I'm doing those hundred dollar things or ten dollar chips, and I'll put the dealer. If I feel like the dealer is really doing a good job and I'm winning, I'll like I'll bet on my hands and i'll put 10 bucks and let the dealer get a free roll with me so if i hit blackjack the dealer gets you know whatever 25 buck tip it's just goofy and fun but i call it splashy cashy so when i'm on a hot street i splashy cashy everybody um (laughs) just means you're tipping everybody so we were in the splashy cashy days and now we're in the uh how much runway do you have and can we hit break even (laughs) it's really changed a lot you know this is when people are like well You know, I guess I'm going to give a 15% tip, but should I include the alcohol or should I tip 10% of the alcohol? You know, when people start like really optimizing their tipping. Yeah. The opposite of splashy cashy is the opposite. Oh, she's. So I think here, you know, if you do a flat round and you think, well, that valuation was so juicy, you know, in 2021, we'd be happy to take more money at that valuation Then you just have to check in with your VCs and say, hey, would you like to put more money in at that valuation first? Because Mm -hmm. if they don't, they could experience dilution. Now they may have pro rata, but they may not have pro rata. The nice thing to do is say, hey, we're thinking, you know, we raised that 15. We've Mm -hmm. made all this progress. Now the product's in market. Now we have 25K a month in revenue, 300K a year. Yeah, we don't think we're going to clear market at a higher valuation, but we think we should top off with another million dollars or another 1.5 million dollars. We're going to dilute 10%. Of course, you're going to get diluted 10%. Are you okay with that? Or do you want to take advantage of the fact that it's a flat round? So that's like a really mature discussion uh, to have with your investors. And I think for investors, if the company is growing, I keep track of with our team and you've seen this internally Molly, of course, Mm -hmm. uh, I tell my team when we get the updates from investors, anybody triples revenue over this period of time, I need to get on the phone with them. I need to know what's going on. I need you to tell me why. So okay, it's June. It's July right now. We get June numbers. Let's say a company last year was making fifty k a month. Um, you know, it's a SaaS business, a marketplace, and then all of a sudden we see one hundred sixty. We go, wait a second, something's going on here. We might proactively offer that company money. We might say, hey, things are going really well, and we see you got nine months of revenue or runway. You're burning one hundred k a month. You have nine hundred k. What do you think about doubling it? Maybe we can put another nine hundred k in. And what do you think about doing it at the last valuation, or do you have something in mind? And three out of four times, founders will take the money from us. Hmm. So it's a way for us to increase our position. We have five, 10%. We want to get to 10, 15%. My goal is always, you know, to have double digit. Uh, I don't get greedy about it. I don't have a specific number. But, you know, as an investor, if you can get above 10% ownership in a business and it becomes a unicorn, you got a $100 million position, that's yeah. meaningful, you know? Uh, so that's our goal. And that's another way to look at it. So as an investor, you could be proactively looking at your portfolio and how they're doing and then actually offer them more money. But, of course, the third situation is things are not going well. And that's a mm-hmm. whole nother can of worms.
0: I want to talk about what to do when things are not going well. But first, I want to go back to this kind of yeah. valuation question. So, let's say, and this is unrelated. This yeah. is not based on a specific company. But let's say, like, so they raised, they did the pre-seed at, you know, the splashy cash evaluation. They're mm-hmm. going to do a seed and okay. they want to go up from there, for example. How do you, like, obviously, in a downturn, you get more cautious about your tip you're taking out the alcohol you're like i'm not gonna tip on tax yeah may skip but dessert you lower the over check side yeah but you don't want to find yourself in the position that i've ha- heard so many vcs on podcasts say yeah. which is i passed on yelp because evaluation or i passed yeah. on twitter because evaluation sure. and i should have just written the check yeah so And I feel like this is exactly the moment when that trap would occur for VCs, right? Where you're just like, oh, well, now we're all thinking about valuation and before we weren't. And
1: so if a company is showing signs that they're breaking out, there are some VCs who believe that you can't overpay for that company. Mm -hmm. So if you see a company that has market pull, market pull means consumers or businesses are so in love with the product they just are throwing money at the company the company doesn't need to do marketing it just sells itself airbnb yeah. tesla you know uh uber all experience this uh, at different times in their history somebody shows up in a tesla they take you for a ride you go buy one tesla didn't have to advertise it just the market pulled you in to buying that tesla somebody you jump in an uber with somebody you're like what is this how did you get this really dope car do you you have an assistant like working 24 hours a day who set this up for you are you rich do you have your own driver it's like no i share my driver like that was the original idea is that we're going to share a driver so market pull companies where you see it running away you can basically give them a lot of credit on the valuation and you're lucky to put more money in so the people Mm -hmm. who put money into uber series a series b c d and e all did fabulous so when something's breaking out and i, I think brian singerman from founders Fund says this all the time like when we find a winner we have this really crazy approach where we just pour money into it and then we make one absurd bet per fund and it could take up 10 20 30 percent of the funds dollars so you know they saw spacex as a breakout they just kept plowing money into spacex buying secondary offering them more money etc hmm. and so i think that's a very really interesting strategy um and so that just means you have to have the discipline to know what a breakout company is, and then have the wisdom to say, you know, does valuation matter here, if this company is going to be here 10 years from now, and it's got market pull and customers can't shut up about it, then maybe I need to, you know, take the leap of faith on valuation. Yeah, okay. I'm going to be very quick today, you need to understand what cyber insurance is. Obviously, this covers hacks, which happen more than you think especially in these crazy times, you want to be protected. So you want to have your cyber insurance set up. If you don't have business insurance, you failed one of the first steps of being a founder and having investors, you need to protect yourself, you need to protect the downside and startups should look no further than in broker. In brokers technology saves you time and money. Prices are up to 20% lower with better coverage than incumbents. Go from sign up to quote and purchase in just 10 minutes. When you work with in broker instead of the big, incumbents, you're not dealing with these large, slow corporations and sign up with a broker takes days, not weeks. The process is totally transparent. There's no opaque pricing. There's no annoying incumbents standing in your way of just GSD. You got to get stuff done. Okay. And mm, let's face it, these slow incumbents, they're not going to get it done. Okay, so to instantly buy custom built insurance for startups, go to embroker.com/twist. E M slash twist. E M B R O K E R.com slash twist. And while you're there, you're going to get an extra 10% off, I kid you not, by using my code, TWIST, T-W-I-S-T. Let's T. Let's let's talk about strategic retreats. Yeah.
0: When, you know, you should either strategically retreat with a down round or a flat round or yep. a bridge for some runway. Yeah. Or when you maybe just need to
1: pull the plug. Yep. So, you know, let's start with the hardest, pulling the plug. Yeah. Existing investors uh, will be hit up by their troubled companies early and often. And the company will say, Hey, would you like to put more money And We're doing a bridge. And we say, Yeah, we don't do bridge rounds, we will invest when you have a new investor price the round. That's our philosophy at launch. Um, We will proactively invest in a growing company, as I just previously explained. Mm -hmm. But we generally don't do bridge rounds. Now, there is a caveat there, the syndicate.com where we have other investors who have the pro rata, right, we will let them make their own decision so if you had 100 people from the syndicate invest in the company and they put in a million dollars they put in 10k each now you're raising a bridge and their pro rata is 250k let's say let's say we say we're not taking our pro rata or we'll put in a token 25k or 10k uh, to support the company um which is more optics than anything else and just us trying to be kind to a founder i i I have done that before um but i try not to do it because i try to be disciplined about this hey this is you know, not our investment strategy for the fund. We we want to see you have an up round or we want to see you get a new investor priced round. That's what we want to see. If you can't do that, then our investment, you know, is going to be, our investment decision is going to be to stand pat. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a poker term, stand pat. It means we're not going to put any more money in the pot. Mm-hmm. But we will say to the uh, syndicate, hey, if you want to make a different decision than us, you're welcome to do that. And then what we find is, In those troubled cases, maybe 10 or 20% of the money will come in. In other words, angels are just, you know, have a similar philosophy, most angels make one bet, and they don't do follow on. And so if the company's not growing, well, of course, they're not going to do follow on. And then you have to have this really frank discussion with the founder, which is how many VCs did you meet with? Uh, How many new investors did you meet with? Sometimes they come to us. And they don't even meet with new VCs. I was like, well, you know, Mm. don't you think it would be a good idea for in in your own best interest to price this company on the market? What if you get somebody who prices it at, you know, you're going out at 15 million with this bridge round. What if you get somebody who wants to put in money at 30? So go meet with, email 50 investors and tell me how many meetings you got and then tell me how many term sheets you got. Mm. So go do the work. And 50 emails takes you, you know, whatever, a week to send those, you know, you do 10 a day. And then you do two weeks of meetings, you get 10, 20 meetings you know, half an hour, hour each, and you'll know where you're at in under 30 days. So go do that, right? That's the best thing you can do as an investor is say, did you do the work? And then you can tell them share the 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 spreadsheet with us, where you're tracking who you met with, and maybe we'll add some names, maybe we could do an introduction for you. And let's have a frank discussion. uh, If you put into that spreadsheet, why they declined. Mm -hmm. So it's really important to encourage your founders to say, Hey, uh, I understand you're passing, can you give me any feedback on what things, if we change them, or if, th- what things, if they change, might attract you to doing uh, an investment in the future? And I'm not going to hold you to this, but I, you know, permission granted to be candid. Like if we had twice as much SaaS revenue, if we were profitable, if we were break even, or if we charge more for our product, what things would we need to change to make this a more attractive investor? So at least you get market signal. And it might yeah. be, I think the market size is too small. The TAM is too small. You're only selling to dentist offices, you know, like this. You know, I was talking about the SaaS product just for dentist office. Yeah, so, yeah. And those are all the things you have, those are all the hard discussions you have to have with the founder. And it can be hard because the founder might be like, well, why aren't you supporting me? And it's like, well, this is a business. The reserve capital in the fund is reserved for the breakout hits. We don't, we can't indefinitely fund companies that are not growing. Mm-hmm. The whole concept here is we invest in a basket of companies and then the ones that have the, are the highest performers get the money you are not one of the highest performers. So we'll support you in non-monetary ways, but you have to earn those dollars. It's sort of like somebody saying, like, why didn't I get to the playoffs? And it's like, because you didn't have the record. Right. Um, but that's hard to say to people, right, Molly? Um, yeah, it's like, it's like saying you're not good enough. And, you know, VCs don't want to ruin the relationship with the founder, and they might be fragile at that point in time. So this is a very, I'm, I'm just telling to you real, it's like the hardest, suckiest part of the job is to tell a founder, you failed right you know or we failed or the world doesn't need this product and you know for them they're so identified with the company molly that gosh that's a hard thing to say to somebody because you know they may consider themselves the company yeah so it's they take it very personal i could see anything else that's like between those two breakout company and obviously the market doesn't want the company you know you can have you know, uh, a layered discussion about, uh, you know, okay, right. we've got right. s- the, to be clear, clear, we did the polls here in some ways, right? <laughs> we did the polls. And so, you know, when you get into center, like, you know, I've got some situations where I'll tell a founder, like, you know, I, your company is burning 200k a month, and you have 20k in revenue. Mm-hmm. This company would look completely different if you were burning 50k and had 20k in revenue, and I think you'd be fundable. But yeah. I don't think anybody's coming in to sign up for a bridge round in a company that's not growing you you hit 20k a month for the last four months, it's not growing. Uh, or it's going down, right? So who's going to put $2.4 million into something that's sideways and that has this giant burn when they could put that $2.4 million into something that's growing in their portfolio? Mm -hmm. So do you think you might want to cut the burn to 50K a month, have 20K in revenue, and then have a plan so you're only burning 600 for the next year? You can go to your existing investors and say, hey, listen, if I can get 200K in new money, would you put in 400K here's how we're going to get the 20k to 60k. And if we get it to 60k, then we're only burning 10k a month. Yeah. And now you got a credible story. But I find some founders, especially during this, you know, go go days this boom market. They are, they take time to take that advice and to make those changes because Mm -hmm. it requires going to a team of 20 and saying we're going to be a team of six or seven. Yeah. And that's just like saying to your team, like, hey, we failed. Yeah. We failed and we need to retreat and we need to rebuild this and we need to take radical action if we're going to survive. And it's really easy to take radical action. Like, okay, like, you know, the ship is sinking. We need to throw all these non-important things over the side. So this you know, we reduce the weight and we're going to put everybody on rations. Like you can see it right in front of you. Mm-hmm. And so how do you do it if you're a founder? You say, we have four months of runway and we need 12 months of runway to work this out. We're burning 200k a month, we need to be burning 75. Here's how we're going to get there. We're going to have seven people not 20. And the seven people who remain the top three people are taking 50% pay cuts, uh, the founders, right? So we're going to go from 150k a year to 75k until we work this out. So we're going to take the most pain. Uh, Everybody else in the company is getting paid more than us. And I'm sorry to the people we laid off, we're going to give you all, you know, four weeks severance. And Mm -hmm.
0: that's And it. it may not be your fault. It may just be the market. Like it may, you know, it's, it It seems to be this sort of like belief only goes so far when the market is the market. So then what about if you are, I could imagine a universe where you're this startup who's like, well, my seed valuation isn't going to clear market. Yeah. I'd like to open, reopen my pre-seed round maybe, you yeah. know, at the same valuation. So put a number on it.
1: Yeah. So it's easy for people to understand. So let's
0: say, okay, like you raise a pre-seed at $10 million. Yeah. You want to go out with a seat at 15, but you're like, that's 100x, right? That's not going to clear. In some ways, not to be a mercenary, being able to reopen the pre-seat at that 10 million could be great for me, new investor. Sure. What happens if though, like, is there ever a scenario where I would be the investor who said, I don't want you, I don't want to be diluted?
1: Or what happens if you were the the founder and your previous investors are like, nope. So the previous investors um, would not get to make that decision. Um, yeah. If you can't clear market and the company's going out of business, they could say, you know what, we're racing around at $5 million. That is what's called pay to play. So yes, you invested at 10 million, um, but we're going to do this round at five, which means when we raise that million dollars, you're going to get some dilution here. Uh, and it's, it's not going to be pleasant, but the choice is either shut the company down Or live to fight another day. So, if you owned ten percent of the company, now the company raises a million at five million post. Let's say, and you're now you're going to be twenty percent diluted. You're going to own eight percent. And the way you would look at it is, well, you could be part of that million dollar round. So, if you put five hundred in, now you own twenty percent. Or if you own ten percent, you only have to put hundred in to protect your pro rata. So, you you have the option to keep maintain your percentage, and if you don't, that's your choice. And so these things can be even more punitive. And one little technique that I've seen used and have used, we're going to raise that 10 million the last round. But each investor who invests in this round gets a warrant to buy another share sometime in the next 10 years for a penny. What does that mean? We've maintained the number of shares. So you're not getting the dilution now. But if we do win, do know that the people who put that million dollars in for 10%, they can buy another 10% of the company for 10 bucks. And so they got a little pot sweetener, right? And so that would affect everybody. Those are called warrants. So some yeah. people ask for warrant coverage in times like this. And um, it's a fine thing to do. You know, it, it doesn't screw up your current cap table, but you do have those warrants hanging out there. And then when the sale does happen, those people execute their warrants. And all of a sudden it's like, hey, wait a second. I thought I was going to make $5 million on this. It's like, nope, you're only making 4.5 because they executed their warrants and they own 10% more of the company. So that's where warrants come in. Huh
0: fascinating. Now, I feel like we can do another hour on warrants, but I think I'm good on this one.
1: Yeah, a warrant (laughs) is a right to buy a share. And sometimes people will give it to a consultant, hey, we'll give you 1000, but you know, $10,000 in warrants, or they'll give warrants to Silicon Valley Bank, or Comerica or First Republic, if they give you um, a venture loan, and they'll say, okay, yeah, we just want to have warrant coverage. So if this thing does work out, we have the option to buy some shares before you go public. And that's their little pot sweetener. So people use warrants here and there.
0: So if you're um, a sophisticated founder, should you sort of establish a little baby pool of them so that you don't nah, get, because I give can imagine them that getting go. out of hand. You yeah, do. you don't, yeah,
1: it's not like an employee stock option pool where you're accounting for them. Not a real pool,
0: them. but a, like a mental pool. Like I'm going to yeah, get 10 um, of these. You, or,
1: it's sort of like a last minute thing to do to close a deal. So we're trying to, you know, it's like, yeah, and uh, here's uh, some grappa and some, you know, uh, biscotti <laughs> at the end of your meal. It's just like a little pot sweetener at the end. Just a little yep. thing to make those investors who took the risk. Sometimes people will ask for a 3X liquidation preference. So this company's going out of business. I'll put 250K and that's enough to get you through five more months. You're burning 50K a month. Um, I want to get three times my money back in cash because I'm giving you this high-risk loan, basically. So I want 750K back before... Uh, and then I want my equity. So it's a $10 million valuation. I'll put the 250K in for 2.5%, but I want three times the 250. It's called a liquidation preference. Mm-hmm. I want three times that 250 in cash first. And then if the company was sold for 100 million, I would get the 2.5 million for the 2.5%. But I would take the 750 off the top. So then the proceeds would be ninety nine million point two five zero. That's like the really sharky thing, the liquidation preferences. But the board might be like, okay, nobody else wants to put up money. So we'll so take we'll that. It. You know, and, and uh, you know what? If it's a company that's circling the drain and you're gonna put two fifty in, yeah, having some guaranteed return um would maybe give you the ability to justify making a crazy bet. Yeah. It's like getting odds, you know, like, okay, if I'm gonna bet on this like l- horse that's twenty to one, you know, that's the weakest of the pack, I should get twenty to one odds if it does make it to the front of the it does win the race, right? So yeah. you're basically yeah. just like betting on ponies, right? And it's like, okay, yeah, this is a long shot. Some people love the long shots. They get like a, a little bit of dopamine hit from it. So it's a great question. And the most important thing is to candidly discuss this with your investors and for investors to be super upfront immediately about what their plans are. The worst thing to do is give false hope. So I'm very clear with people. Mm-hmm. We're not participating. You can ask the syndicate if they want to, but the company's not growing. We have to use our funds reserve capital for things that are the the highest growth. Our LPs also know what the highest growth companies are because we send them updates. Like If they see us investing in things that are low growth or no growth, they're going to say, wait a second, that wasn't the agreement. You told us when you pitched us on being on this fund that you would reserve 20% of the capital for the high growth stuff. What's going on here, J-Cal? Mm-hmm. So you have to have a little empathy as a founder for the investors, strategic ability to get a return for their fund. and. You know, the thing that really annoys me is when investors give false hope to the founders. They're like, I yeah. don't know, come back to me when you get a term sheet or yeah, maybe we will. I don't know, is anybody else investing? Um, and I, th- I mean, that's valid. Like, is anybody else gonna do this? So I, in my earlier well, days would right. say- right, I think it's like important to say, cause we do
0: say that to founders. I said that today, again, to a founder, right? Like, yeah. ideally when we say it, we mean it. It doesn't mean if well, you get it, a lead, I'm going to invest,
1: but it means- You're saying that for a new investment, right? For a new investment. Yeah, right. yeah. So, yeah, yeah, I'm talking about when you're already on the cap table type situation. A new investment yeah. is fine. Like, yeah, we don't want to lead, but if you find a lead and you define terms, sure, we'll look at it. Mm-hmm. We, you know, Who knows what terms you'll get? You know, maybe it'll be attractive to us. Maybe you find a great lead who we have faith in. This is for like the existing companies. This is the right, yeah, yeah, yeah. totally. I, I have yeah. told founders before, listen, if you want us to take on this pain of investing and like this really risky bet, um, I want 100% of the existing investors. So there's like when I was an angel, I said, you know, you got seven angels here. If and I'm one of them, if all six put up their pro rata, so you raised a million, now you want a 250K bridge, if everybody does 25% of their original investment, I'll do it. And they were like, yeah, only two people want to do it. I was like, okay, well, then I'm not doing it. And sure enough, they went through each person and they basically shamed them into doing it. And then one person, who had only put in 5k, you know, who didn't have wasn't a very liquid person, I won't say their name, but they were kind of like a blogger or something. We just And I was like, Okay, well, it doesn't matter. It's $1,500 or something, mm-hmm. that 1250 that they would have put in. So uh, you got six out of seven good enough. And uh, we did. it. And of course, I lost my money. <laughs> so punchline. <laughs> Even that strategy didn't work because you're betting on something that's proven in the market. This yeah. Is, this is why you have to look at these startups. Like there's as- a
0: reason there's a reason it can't clear
1: Yes. And so you have to look at these as experiments. And if you could say to the founder, hey, this experiment didn't work. Shut the company down. We'll all take the loss and come back to us in a year with your next best idea. And let's do Mm -hmm. a fresh cap table with your new idea. And, you know, we'll go from there. And that's, it takes, some founders are very quick to shut things down because they're entitled and they want to get paid a huge salary. And if it's not easy, they just shut it down willy nilly. Mm. Even with money in the bank and they could have kept going. And then other founders will grind it out forever. And, you know, sometimes people grind it out too long. Right. So you got to be
2: right
0: in.
1: You got to be like quick to shut it down for the right reasons. Correct. Yeah. That's a whole nother discussion. We could do another VC Sunday school. Which right. we should. Microacquire is a startup acquisition marketplace that cuts out everyone in the middle. Basically, that means they help startups get acquired efficiently. If you're a founder looking to sell, Microacquire is free. It's private and it involves nobody in the middle charging you some huge percentage. To date, Microacquire has helped. Hundreds of startups get acquired and facilitated hundreds of millions of dollars in closed deal volume. The platform includes over 120,000 buyers and they pay $390 a year for access and thousands of startups are currently listed for sale there. So all the buyers are there looking for opportunities. Hundreds of successful acquisitions have occurred so far and founders get free and instant access to these 120,000 trusted buyers. And you're going to stay completely anonymous. On the other side of the marketplace, again, buyers simply pay $390 a year, which seems like a lot of money, but it's not if you're a buyer of companies, right? It's, it actually seems too cheap. It probably should be $3,900 a year. They, they decided to charge a very reasonable price. So here is your call to action. It's very simple. MicroAcquire helps startups find buyers. Buyers can browse the listings. They pay just $390 a year. If you're a buyer, you can do that. Try.microacquire.com slash twist. And if you want to list your company, you can do that as well. Do you want to do a bonus? Because we have a super chat question. Oh,
0: that Here we is go. BC Sunday School related. Great. Here we go. Via Enterprise AR super chat question. So all this mm-hmm. money is going to charity and we get a bonus answer for our listeners. Okay. Here we go. Does uh, age matter, says Enterprise AR? Do older founders, 40 plus, listen and make those hard choices faster than young founders?
1: I would say more seasoned founders will definitely make these decisions faster and more maturely because yeah. they've been through it and they're more mature. Sure, of course. Yeah, people who have more experience, will make these decisions much faster.
0: Could I could imagine you must also find yourself in a scenario though where you've got somebody who's like, I had multiple great exits, like I know what I'm doing. I'm really good at this. And the, yeah. and and you can still find yourself in a situation where the business isn't working. And would you then maybe encounter this pushback? Like I could imagine um, the opposite occurring probably not as often, but that sense of entitlement maybe, which no, is like, you're going to bet I, on I, me because I'm
1: awesome. I, I think after you've done three startups, let's say, I'll put it yeah. at like the number three, you're pretty pragmatic about this. Yeah. Hey, it worked. Like with, with found, I'm not going to put an age on it because I've, I've met founders who've done their third startup and they're 30 years old, right? So right. they don't need right. to be 40 or 50. I've done it uh, or 25 years old even. And they say, you know what? We took your 500K we did this i'm telling you it's not going to work i want to work on other stuff the team is not motivated we made a mistake um we still got 200k in the bank we'd like to send you 40 cents on the dollar back and that's the mature thing to do and i'm like okay thanks (laughs) i'm like do you have an idea you want to pivot to nope we don't want to pivot the team's burnt out this is this this is a this this dog you know don't bark we're done and i'm like okay thank you (laughs) now i can move on to the next company uh so it's you know super efficient and yeah i think that maturity comes from understanding the dynamics of the overall ecosystem, which is you understand the power law. This company is not going to affect your impact your life, your employees, nobody's going to get rich, and your investors can afford to take the loss because it's 1% of their fund, therefore 2% of their fund, they would rather you move on to your next adventure, and they don't have to monitor this and they can take the write off and put their energy towards the winners in the portfolio. That takes yeah. a level of maturity. Um, that's very easy to say on a podcast. When it's not your company, it's not your baby, you didn't spend three years of your life on it. It's very hard when you spend three years of your life on something to let go. Yeah. Heck, I'm still running inside and it's in the second decade, you know, it started as Mahalo and it's doing great. It's doing millions of dollars a year in revenue. I won't give it up. I, right. I got to get that across the finish line, right? And I have a certain sense of pride about that. Um, Might have, most other founders would have shut it down. And trust me, if it wasn't working, I would have shut it down let everybody take the loss, but I'm like, no, you know, I'm gonna, I got a rabbit and I'm like, pulling it out of the hat any day now. Yeah. Like, Love I think it. somebody I think like there's many buyers for inside.com, you know, with 10 million in revenue, and we're halfway there. So, you know, I'm like, you know, what, this would be hilarious if in year 14 of this company, or 12, whatever it is, I came back and gave everybody two extra money back and was like, Hey, you know, that thing that you invested in? Yeah, it wasn't working. Hey, it worked. <laughs>
3: that
1: Amazing. to me would be like, one of the great, you know, moments of my life.
0: I love it, you guys! What a great BC Sunday school. There we go. Next up, we have uh, this weekend climate startups. A super interesting conversation oh. with the founders of Clarity Movement, mailing oh. Gao and David Liu. It's this really interesting hardware as a service business yes. that builds products to measure air quality.
1: Yes, this is a great, interesting company. Awesome. Uh, and and why do they really measure the air quality? Who are their customers? I wonder.
0: Their customers actually are cities, like municipalities. They have the city of London, they have the city of Houston, they've got, and then they have like the UCLA school district because this local, basically like if a city wants to measure air quality right now, they use these massive shipping container size, super expensive things. They might have one or two, but a service like this can supplement that with hyper local real time Hmm. measurement and help people make. Decisions about—I mean, sometimes you know—in the Bay Area
1: or LA, like literally, when it's safe to go outside, or is school going to be open or not? Should we have kids outside or inside? Should they come to school at or not? Should you come to work or not? Yeah,
0: exactly, exactly, and then potentially drive policy because we know like pollution is also emissions, so it's it's a climate impact absolutely that can drive a lot of uh, money and action. Super interesting conversation. If
1: you if you can measure it, you can manage it. uh, Coming up next, the founders of Clarity. Enjoy.
0: David Liu is the CEO and Mei Lin Gao is the COO of Clarity Movement doing precision error pollution monitoring. You guys, welcome to the show.
4: Thanks for having us, Malik.
3: Thanks for having us, Molly. Nice to meet you.
0: Whichever one of you is best at your elevator pitch, for those who are not familiar with Clarity, tell us what you do. And then I want to ask each of you how you, how you came to that.
4: I'm happy to give a quick overview and then make can probably add uh, you know, if I miss anything. So, uh, Clarity Movement, um, is a clean tech, uh, startup that's focused on providing professional grade air quality monitoring service that comprise hardware, software, and our, uh, air quality expertise to municipalities, um, uh, government, uh, governments,
0: uh, large organizations and the industries all around the world. Why do these why do these municipalities and governments and organizations need to to buy this from Clarity Movement?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So I think David gave a great overview. And the way I like to tell people who don't have knowledge about air quality or the climate space is we really make it easier to measure the air around us so we can do something about it. And this is one of the challenges in the environmental space is that the technology that is being used to monitor air pollution, to drive action, whether it's a government You know, in academia, doing research, it's very clunky. It's expensive. It's difficult to use. And we're really making it easier to get beyond that point, so we can actually generate the data that's useful. That whoever is making that decision about what to do about air air pollution that's happening in the West Coast or all around the world, uh, it's actually we're making that that action happen a lot faster.
0: And then, if you wouldn't mind, like draw that connection for us between air pollution. And climate, I think people are starting to become aware of just how dangerous air pollution is and how these two things are re- related, but the the knowledge base is not totally there yet.
4: There are a lot of connections between climate and uh, air pollutions. And I think, um, first of all, um, I think a lot of us, especially if we're living in the West Coast, you see extreme air pollution events happens much more often because of the wire fire. And that's a symptom um, of the climate change that we're facing nowadays. Um, as a matter of fact, um, I think this type of extreme events uh, is going to probably become a regular part of our life. Um, and that's depressing. Um, but on the other hand, um, now be able to protect ourselves during this kind of extreme event um is becoming another priority, uh, I think, um, in certain parts of the countries. Um so um, on the other hand, um um another connection between the air pollution and the climate is that they often share the same sources uh of um of emissions. Um like we usually say the climate and the air pollution are essentially the um, two sides of the same coin, mm-hmm. um, and that's kind of true in maturity of the city we're working. In. Um, when a city is trying to tackle uh, the air pollution, um, they are also um, tackling the climate emissions in the city as well. I mean, just for example, um, in London, you know, one of their signature policy is the introduction of the low emission zone, uh, in the city. Uh, and by doing so, they start to curb, uh, you know, preventing, um, vehicles, uh, beyond certain emission standard from entering into the city. Uh, so when you start to doing that, air pollution drop in the city, but at the same time, carbon emission also drop. Mm-hmm. Um, at least in that region um, so um, yeah so we definitely starting to see this co um, um that's usually the word they use uh, of climate actions when people are uh, trying to tackle the air pushing issues um, and the clarity there's help them to quantify that as well yeah.
1: user privacy is one of the biggest topics in tech right now we talk about it on the show all the time. And if you care about your privacy, you need to check out Brave. Brave shields you from ads, trackers, and other creepy stuff that follows you across the web. Now they have three core products at Brave. The core browser, the search engine, and its browser-native crypto wallet. I had the founder of Brave on the program, in fact. Brave's browser now has over 60 million users, think about that, and thousands of daily downloads. And it's built on Chromium, which is the open source Chrome project. So all your favorite Chrome extensions, they work in Brave. And it's three times faster than Chrome. Why? Because Brave doesn't bog you down with all those ads. You can import your bookmarks, passwords, and settings from Chrome or any browser with just one click. And it doesn't track you, what you search for, or what you click on. And here's why you can really trust Brave. Brave was co-founded by Brendan Eich, who was the creator of JavaScript, a co-founder of Mozilla Firefox, and a technical lead on Netscape. How about that, huh? He knows what he's doing. He's been on the pod. So brave search is a truly private and independent search engine. Go download brave today at brave.com twist to browse faster, search privately, and so much more all in a single click brave.com twist. Go download it today and try it. Give me some feedback.
0: May tell me how hard this is to measure precisely and how how clarity movement tackles the, the measurement problem because it sounds like it's. There are a couple different, right? There's this kind of citywide measurement that exists now, or there's Mm -hmm. the smaller consumer ones that people are familiar with, and like purple, um, and you sort of sit in the middle?
3: Yeah, I think there's uh, two axes you think about. There's a time element is how frequently you're measuring. And then also a space element is how many sensors you have covering a certain area. So that is drives down to the issue with air pollution that It is, can be very hyper local, so air pollution can vary quite a bit neighborhood to neighborhood, you know um, uh, road to road. um so having that high resolution across space is really important to understand the type of air you're breathing the br- air you're breathing right now could be not be measured by a government monitor that's maybe 10 miles away. Mm-hmm. So in some cities right now, if they have any kind of monitor, they maybe only have one or two, only a few. Um, so it really doesn't help you understand, help the government understand what's happening at the the local level. And within the US and, and internationally, what we're seeing right now, as we're getting large, getting better at controlling these larger sources of pollution, um, where it's really becoming hyper-local. And a lot of that is driven by transportation sources so having that hyperlocal monitoring is really important to help identify where these new hotspots and pollution sources are within an area so the government can go in and actually find ways to tackle this better. And this is really important because we're seeing you know, consistently that it's often in disadvantaged communities that um, where their pollution levels are the highest. Yeah. So this is definitely a very strong environmental justice issue. And this is something we've been tackling within the U.S. internationally for the last few decades. And then in time, the other scale I mentioned is you can't just take one measurement a month and have a, and be able to capture what's happening at that location, right? So having that time resolution where you're ha- sampling or collecting data more frequently, um, every few minutes. You know, in some cases there are sensors out there collecting every second. That might be too much data, but having understanding what's happening with the air pollution um, hour to hour. Um, across, you know, different hours of the day, the days of the week is really important to understand when the pollution source is happening and where they're happening. That really helps identify and help us um, be able to control and create policies to reduce these uh, types of sources. Is there
0: such a thing as too much data? Come on. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Let's be more specific, actually, about the devices that are being replaced. Like when you're operating in the city of London, or let's say you were operating in San Francisco, um, I think David, when we first met, explained to me that these government monitors are massive and super expensive and that's why there's only a couple of them right talk to me about what exists now for a city or a university um and then what the difference is in literal product
4: yeah of course so um the current uh government operated uh uh, air quality monitor is often a size of a i would say a decent size of shipping container so um and it's so not that really, portable. <laughs> <laughs> uh, absolutely not. It's going to take, I don't know, months to be able to site and then, uh, actually put them in, uh, not to mention all the years of permission to then to do so. Um, and the cost is very expensive. Um, it can go as high as probably a quarter million dollars, uh, to just simply purchase one station and it's cost roughly in the neighborhoods of $100,000 a year uh, just to keep it running. So the, both on the CapEx and the OPEX-wise, is extremely expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, so one thing we want to make it clear here is that priority is not to replace this uh, kind of government monitoring station. Um, I think there's a place for them. Um, I think there's a reason that they're very, very expensive is because they're trying to go for that like super precision, uh, mm-hmm. precision and accuracy. Clarity's precision is really to supplement um, the station uh, that's already deployed in the city so that's the uh, government operators um, can essentially uh, leverage this reference station uh, as what we call an anchoring point. Um, and um, kind of expand their footprint of air quality monitoring in the cities. So, for example, in city of London... Uh, we're, we're, which is we're, a customer, we should say. <laughs> yes, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, yeah, which is a customer. Um, they actually have one of the best reference monitoring infrastructure in the world, uh, composed of roughly around 100 uh, reference stations all across the city. So you may be thinking, oh, well... They already have so many. Do they really need more? Yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, as a matter of fact, um, um, when we first started with the network, uh, there were um, uh, we uh, putting in 150 additional um, uh, clarity sensors in the city to supplement their network. Now uh, that number has grown to the north of 400 uh, all across the city. Um, that's because no matter how. Like a city are huge. And just as May mentioned, uh, mm-hmm. nowadays, uh, it's really coming down to street corner to street corners when, when we're talking about the fight for air pollutions. So be able to measure exactly, uh, where they want and when they want is, I think, what we are offering, um, um, to, um, kind of the government operators or other organizations.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, may break it down for us. There's a there's hardware and there's software. Talk to me about the deployment and the business model and how it might work in
3: conjunction with
0: like these existing government reference monitors.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So we really designed the system to be easy to use and integrated. So a lot of times the older technologies they're there's purely hardware um, and they're very expensive. But we designed it where and actually I think David has a, a unit in his hand right now. Nice where you can see how small Show it is. And tell. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So we wanted to have the hardware make it really easy to deploy. There's a, you know, a global SIM card inside that works out of the box in over 180 countries that really makes it easy for a customer not to deal with a SIM card, communications. Um, there's a solar panel as well, and battery inside so you can deploy it. Um, that's not reliant on the grid. And this is really important because a lot of the places where pollution um is a concern is you know the, you know, the gl- grid is not reliable. You know, we're expanding into Southeast Asia and to places in Africa, South America, where Sometimes a grid goes offline. So they really need to be able to deploy in areas where people think there is an air pollution concern. So on top of the hardware, we also built a easy-to-use software suite um, where the user, the government can actually log in and manage and view all the data from their tens, hundreds, you know, of sensors that they have deployed across an area. And it's we designed it so you don't have to have a background or PhD in in public health or air pollution sciences to be able to understand the data that's coming in from your, from your network and know how to manage it. So it really is this sweet. And then obviously on top of that, we're building insights right now. We also have a team of air quality experts that are providing that service to make sure that the experience of doing the deployment um, across all your sites and getting the data flowing and understanding the data and the, also the calibration to make sure the QAQ see the data Um, is, you know, it's, it's really seamless and that's kind of how we, we saw there was a gap in the, the market where oftentimes that process is very difficult and, and groups are often stuck on the technology side and they aren't able to, um, focus on what's important, which is really looking at the data that's coming in. So they actually drive decision and action. So I think, you know, in terms of how we develop the product, that's kind of our vision is we really want to make that integrated and easy to use for our customer.
0: So you have this team of people who help with installation and deployment, make sure that the data is accurate. Do they also help with insights or will that be software driven?
3: So actually, we design a product so the customer um, does the deployment themselves. And mm-hmm. we've had customers, as you know, David mentioned, the cities um, that are as well funded as London to community groups or, you know, um, uh, Teachers and schools uh, doing these deployments for you, so it is very easy to use. And they are the ones that actually go out and do the deployments. And we have um, a team supporting them if, if they need to, you know, have questions. Um, the insights piece, um, we're working on that right now with the the software. But we also do have that team of you know air quality experts are able to step in and help direct that conversation, also help them direct some of the data analyses. Um, so that's kind of the piece that we will be building out in the next couple of years.
0: Gotcha, love it. Um, let's talk about outcomes of measurement. You know, it's so you can't manage what you don't measure is such a sort of simple way to put it, but it's really true. And so I wonder how you imagine a future where we actually really do know where where nobody can make excuses because the measurement of air quality and air pollution is so hyperlocal and so precise and no one can hide from the reality of this data. What do you hope then comes out of that?
4: yeah I think like um the fundamental of the air pollution management is elimination of the pollution source uh right I mean that's pretty much the only way you can curb uh um uh, air pollution events in your cities so um our kind of vision of having this data is really to empower um either the legislature or the um kind of facility operators or even just the citizens to act on this data um so that they can um either um kind of crafting policy that's addressing specific problem that's reviewed um uh, in, in our network or um as a f- like facility operator to drafting reaction plan um to um protect uh, the, your occupants in the facility from the approaching events, or for citizens to using this data to advocate, um, and then putting pressures, um, to the legislator um, to act on this. So, um, I mean, as a matter of fact, we have already seen some, you know, really great initial success and of utilizing this data across our customer base. Um, I think. Um, one of our, um, uh, customer, uh, which is Los Angeles Unified School District, mm-hmm. um, actually recently announced they deployed this massive network of 200 sensors across their schools. Um, in the past, they had to rely on the local governments on the air pollution informations to decide whether to, let's say, um, preventing the children's going out. Uh, in the yard, or even sometimes cancel the school or not. Mm-hmm. But that information, as May mentioned, is very, very sparse. So, um, and Los Angeles Unified School District has a thousand facilities uh, all across the whole LA counties. So, because of that, you know, like the information they rely on were incredibly, like, how to say, not, exactly as helpful as they wanted to. Mm-hmm. I mean, ideally, they want to be able to act on exactly the information at their school at that moment. So I think that's one of the ability we kind of come in and offer is really we're starting to empowering uh, a lot of organizations that's in the past had to rely on governments for air quality information. Now taking the air monitoring to their own hands and and knowing the data they're getting is accurate and reliable, um, and to make their critical, uh, kind of decisions. Um, and then we see how community members can utilize this as well. Um, so we see the community in Houston, um, actually was able to leverage in that data that collected and clearly see the, like, periodical spikes during that. Particular time period and so on and really pushing the legislator to, uh, make an action on that. And I, I, think that is actually going to the right direction. Uh, now, uh, the legislator now have to, um, uh, thinking about putting in a reference monitor in their community. Mm-hmm. And when they do so, um, they will be enforced by law to making sure the air pollution stay within, um, well, clean your uh, uh kind of frame. So that's like the really the power we are we're seeing. You know? yeah
0: <laughs> let's drill into that the public health part of this too, because I think for for people who are not on the the West Coast or who have never lived somewhere where air quality can get to the point where it is unsafe to be outside. um you know, you mentioned Los Angeles making these really specific decisions. We've, of course had that in the Bay Area multiple times where they've had to cancel school because of air quality or, you know, tell kids to wear and or everybody to wear N95 masks because the air quality is literally that terrible. Um, May, can you draw that line for us? Like, make it really clear how big of a public there's sort of the acute public health crisis part of this. And then there's this sort of ongoing, (laughs) slow moving nightmare train public health disaster part of it.
3: Yeah, it's, you know, we're really trying to make the invisible visible with the data we're generating. It's, mm-hmm. if you're living in an area where you can't see the air pollution, it doesn't mean it's, it's, it's not there. And, um, maybe you're lucky enough to be and live in a location where generally pretty healthy blue skies. Um, but unfortunately about, uh, 90% of the pop world's population is living in areas with, uh, bad air, according to the WHO. So it is a very significant, um, portion of the population. And we're really trying to, uh, clarify that kind of relationship and bring awareness to this. And I think, unfortunately, in, in the U.S., um, it's something that a large portion of the population is more increasingly aware of this now. When mm-hmm. we first started Clarity a few years ago, uh, it was interesting. Uh, most of our work was international, um, until the last few years when wildfires really came into focus for the West Coast so that everyone started asking us about PM 2.5, particulate matter and the soot and everything that was happening. Yeah. Because so then it wasn't it,
0: just, I mean, we sent our wildfire smoke across the entire yes, country. <laughs>
3: yes. And it's yeah. something that travels, right? So it's not just contained within a certain region. We've detected um on the west west of the Mississippi mercury from, you know, coal burning in China. Mm-hmm. Um and so it's it's something that's very that's very global. And it, we can't really just say, we'll tackle it at one source and we'll we will not have to worry about it. So it is a very global problem. And it's interesting public from the public health perspective because it's been you know, studied since for the last few decades and there really is no safe level of air pollution. Right. When you breathe it in, um, it's going to cause premature mortality, cardiovascular effects, um, increase in asthma attacks if you're asthmatic. Um, and it's, it's just linked to a whole slew of things. And then they're doing increasing in studies as it's, it's as this expands and it, you know, it's harder to. It's, it's easy to quantify the significant imp- impacts of, of breathing in um, bad air and what this means for public health. And the linkage between air pollution and climate is interesting that the impacts of air pollution happens a lot faster and it's more visible mm. and it's more personal since, um, than in climate change. So sometimes in part of the climate narrative, bringing in air pollution to talk about those impacts on public health is actually makes it more, climate change even potentially more relatable to people on the ground to actually make them care about it even more. So I think this is something our vision for myself and David and the rest of the company is how do you tell that story and link air pollution as part of this larger environmental uh, narrative and say, this is something that we really should care about. And it gives it the, gives people the right timescale to think about all these changes are happening around the world, around with the environment. So
0: right. um, like put really simply, emissions cause pollution and pollution kills a lot of people every year. Full mm-hmm. stop.
3: And there's yeah. just a cycle too, that positive yeah. feedback. And you know, as you emit more, it causes climate change and it worsens all these other um, factors as well. And then so it's it's telling that really complex story is what we're trying to do. Yeah. Um, well, in less complex
0: stories, actually maybe more complex stories, tell us quickly about the business model since we're talking about the startup. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um we actually provide
4: something we're called sensing as a service mm-hmm. to our customers. So it's composed of the hardware you just saw, um, the software may mention and our air quality expert support. And then we wrap everything in, in this subscription, um, model, uh, to our customers. I think the whole point, um, you know, of designing such model is really, um, kind of designed around the idea of we want to make the air quality monitoring easy. Um, we want to make it um, uh, accessible for everyone. So let us to take care of all the hard stuff, and you can focus on how you can make changes. Uh, depends on the data uh, you're getting. Yeah,
0: David and May, David Liu, CEO, May Ling Gao, COO of Clarity Movement. Thank you so much for the time, and good luck with everything. Thank you so much, Molly.
1: All right, everybody, that wraps up another amazing week of This Week in Startups. My God, what a great week, Molly. I know, so good. It good really, turns out this is like a really good show. It's a good show, yeah. Turns we would keep you guys um, informed. If you guys have any thoughts on how to make it better, producers at thisweekinstartups.com, tell us what you love. Yeah, keep them coming. And of course,
0: another awesome news show tomorrow. We're going to be talking about, among other things, we assume a lot of news is going to break over the weekend like it always does. Hmm. But also, interesting, uh, PitchBook released its Q2 Venture Monitor we're gonna Ah. break it down
1: break it down ah yes i love doing that i I, you know i suspect we're going to see a lower amount of dollars invested but it's good to monitor and give everybody an idea of where they stand uh of course if you want to watch us live every day 10 a.m pacific uh go to youtube.com slash this weekend you hit the subscribe button but next to it is that notification bell you hit that notification bell you can listen to us uh on youtube listen in the background while you're working and you know a couple hundred people come and chat with us so it's really great and if you love the show give us a five-star review and maybe we'll give you one of these amazing This Week in Startups ember-heated mugs. People are going crazy for those
0: on the Twitter. Beautiful. Yeah. All right. See you Monday, everybody.
2: All right. Bye-bye.